Welcome to episode 15 of Breaking the Ice. I'm your host, Connor. Today on the show, we're talking about ports, or more specifically, smart ports. Smart ports use innovative technologies, including artificial intelligence, automation, blockchain, and more to help in the docking of ships, unloading of goods, and other key port functions. But we wanted to know, is it possible to build a port like this in the Arctic? A smart port could be a key enabler of the northern economy as the region's resources sector further develops. Moreover, as interest in northern shipping routes continue to grow, Canada may need a well-developed port system to manage this increased traffic. That's why we invited on Dr. Natalie Gupta to discuss this important issue. Natalie has been working for a number of years independently through her own consultancy firm, Port Processes Limited. She has worked with ports around the world on issues including procedures, transactional advisory work, and other areas. Now, let's get to the show. All right, welcome to this week's episode of Breaking the Ice. I'm here with Dr. Natalie Gupta, and we are talking about smart ports and whether that can be applied to the economy of the Arctic. Um, so Natalie, just to get us started, I'm wondering if you could tell us and your audience about your own personal professional background, a little bit about yourself. Of course. Uh, thank you so much for the invitation to discuss the topic with you. So my name is Natalie Gupta, and I work through my own company, Port Processes Limited, as a consultant for the maritime sector, broadly speaking, but I specifically focus on ports. And uh, I have been doing this for just over 10 years now. And my work mainly spans three areas. The first one tends to be feasibility studies and due diligence projects for ports. And this could involve brand new port projects or the expansion of a port or indeed uh, new projects in the port environment. For example, a new bunkering facility or a new customs uh, setup. The other type of work is trade facilitation. Uh, as you will know, and as the audience will know, uh, ports are also border posts. So in that sense, there will be a lot of regulatory process such as customs, immigrations, and so forth. And this, together with cargo handling and uh, passenger uh, movements, lead to a lot of potential congestion and bottlenecks. So essentially, trade facilitation projects have the aim of reducing the time and cost of trade and passenger transits. And this is less to do with large capital investments, but more to do with less costly process changes, or essentially changes that don't involve large investments, but that can be as effective in uh, increasing capacity. And then the third area of work is, uh, has recently just really boomed in our sector, and that relates to climate change. And one of the elements of that, as you will know, and um, our audience may know is alternative fuels. So essentially zero carbon fuels and the future fuels that ships will be running on to um, reduce, minimize and eliminate carbon emissions. So I have worked in several regions. My main most engaged projects have been in the Middle East and West Africa. 
And um, yes, and I've also worked a lot in Europe being based in London. So yeah, that, that's broadly my experience so far. Great, thank you. Um, so you've touched on, you've started touching on this a little bit already, but what is the role of ports in the, in the world economy? And are ports becoming more or less important uh, in terms of the whole broader world economy picture? So there's uh, various aspects to that question. I would say that, um, so the concept of port can actually be a little misleading because when somebody talks about a port, some um, a lot of people think immediately of just the stevedoring dimension, which basically means the handling of the cargo. But in fact, the port is actually a much broader ecosystem and involves the marine side, it involves the cargo handling, it involves the regulatory dimension, which we touched upon earlier to do with customs and immigration and so forth. And there's also a whole ecosystem outside the immediate port gate, but in the vicinity of the port, for example, trucking, customs brokerage, and all these other services such as inland container terminals that are inextricably linked to the port. So that said, Ports generally, I would say, fulfill three different functions. As, I, as we discussed border posts, there are also entry and exit points for cargo and passengers. And there are also locations which are typically equipped with very expensive infrastructure that you will need in order to handle large items such as uh, containers or general cargo and so forth. So clearly these areas of cargo handling and regulatory processes, they will become more and more important as the economy uh, grows and therefore trade also grows. So broadly speaking, the global economy has been going through a very speedy transformation in the past 30, 40 years and ports have had a real direct role to play in that. They have always been important. However, arguably they've become increasingly important as trade and passenger movements have increased and become more international. And it's also important to note that ports cater not only to the domestic economy in which they are located, but they also are very important for landlocked countries, for example, who do not have an immediate maritime border, but need to access ports in order to trade. So if we think about it, it's not just an asset that is directly linked to its local economy, but ports can have a very important role internationally for other economies as well. If you're someone like me, who's not very familiar with ports and how they work, are there different types of ports for different types of ships, for example, like a, 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 a cargo ship can only dock in a certain type of port. How does that work? I would say over time, ports have become more specialized and the same dynamic has happened in the context of vessels. So if we think of a port, the port has two fundamentally um, different but inextricably linked customer bases. One is the ship that comes to the port as a customer and the other one is the cargo owner, so consignees or shippers who are either exporting their cargo or importing their cargo. 
So from the point of view of the port, having the ships as a customer, that means that their facilities need to cater to the ships and need to cater to the cargo that the ships are bringing in or taking out. So over time, uh, ports have had to specialize more and more and more. So currently we have large ports that tend to fulfill um, very international roles, um, such as large transshipment hubs, such as Singapore, for example. That type of port doesn't only cater to its local economy, but plays a broader regional, if not international role, uh, where ships come in, discharge cargo, and then that cargo is immediately loaded to smaller vessels or larger vessels that then distribute that cargo elsewhere. We have smaller ports that are very much catering to local economy, um, and these can be found all over. We also have a distinction to, to make between seaports and river ports. And these also tend to be different in size, but also in terms of infrastructure. And within that, you have to imagine that we, have, we may have different terminals that specialize in particular cargo. So in a la typical large port, you will have a one or two or three container terminals. You may have bulk terminals. You may have general cargo terminals. You might have so-called Roro terminals, which are terminals specifically catering to cars and trucks. So essentially vehicles. We have liquid bulk terminal, and those are terminals that are specifically catering to liquid cargo. And several other examples can be uh, provided. These are all specialized terminals that have specific type of equipment to handle that specific type of cargo. All of this can happen in the context of one port. So we need to distinguish between terminals and then the port is the broader umbrella that within which all these terminals operate. And it also needs to be said that each terminal may be operated by different stevedores, so different private sector operators. And so I guess for a small isolated region like the Arctic, the port that could be built there would be much less specialized. It would have to be very general in its purposes. And it wouldn't be able to have the same sort of mass applicability that you've sort of described some ports as having. That's a, it's a good question. I would say that it's that's not necessarily the case. I think the first question we would need to ask is what function those ports that we are thinking about need to provide. For example, if we have a situation where we have renewable energy, like let's say renewable energy infrastructure, uh, let's say wind, power offshore, then ports will need to cater to that type of industry. That will involve very specific type of infrastructure that can cater to the vessels that need to service these offshore winds. That will be specialized 
that will need to be specialized because that is exactly the service we need to provide. However, that said, your point is well taken in that if indeed the infrastructure for the general port for the purposes of importing and exporting cargo, if that is what we are talking about, indeed, the starting point would be to try and have a more general port infrastructure that can cater to all the different requirements. And then as the economy grow, we can start thinking about more specialized handling. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. What we're really interested in getting at here today are what smart, smart ports. So what are smart ports and what is the value of having one? <laughs> That's a, it's a good question. Smart ports has been a concept that has been around for quite some time now. I remember starting to hear it being voiced and discussed already five, six years ago. And essentially the, the concept uh, refers to the use of technology and the latest technology really in uh, rendering ports more flexible and therefore more profitable um, and more resilient and more predictable. And technology, especially the latest technology has a massive role to play. So essentially in, in the context of a smart port, the port will be using technology as a tool to enable information sharing, which is one of the key things that happen in a port because as we were discussing earlier, there are lots of different stakeholders involved in the whole process. And also um, intelligent infrastructure. So essentially infrastructure with things like sensors that allow predictability monitoring uh, and also enhanced safety. So all of this then helps to optimize operations, which is where a lot of the bottlenecks are, um, and also increase resilience, uh, safety, and also potentially environmental benefits can come out of, um, let's say the measures that come under the umbrella of smart ports. And when we're talking about the technology, we're talking about IT innovations such as automation. And of course, this has a direct relevance for ports in the context of, you know, the big infrastructure machinery that they have. Um, Internet of Things, big data, blockchain simulation has had an, a very prominent role in ports recently, and also more well-established technologies such as cloud computing. In a lot of developing countries, but not only, processes in ports are still very manual. So in that sense, you know, we shouldn't assume that what is happening in Rotterdam or Hamburg or Singapore is the standard. That is absolutely not the standard, I can assure you. There's a lot of ports out there that are using very basic, basic um, technologies as well. So just for illustration's sake, could you give a specific example of a problem perhaps that smart, te smart technology might be able to help us solve? Sure. So um, I'd say, so there are different areas um, where smart technology can be applied in the context of a port. Uh, one would be, as I said, operations, and that would include um, automating certain processes. Now, one of the key things that ports have been, uh, one of the key challenges that 
courts have been facing for a long, long time is uh, occupational health and safety standards. Um, you don't want things to go wrong in a port because we're talking about uh, 20 tons, 30 tons, 40 tons, if not more heavyweight happening. So one of the things that automation has been used for is to replace workers in the direct vicinity of the cargo handling areas with machines. And this in, uh, has, has the potential of having a very beneficial effect on um, health and safety records of ports. Now, replacing human beings with machines in the context of cargo operations is rather, it, it's happening and it's happened, but it's not that straightforward. And the reason is that as we discussed before, vessels are different. In weather is different. So there's a lot of variables that go into decision-making concerning how to operate. All of this new technology needs to cater to those variables. So that is an example of where human beings might still be involved, but physically removed from the immediate vicinity of the cargo handling. And essentially now they tend to be located in completely separate offices and they're handling the machinery remotely, like almost like playing a computer. Other areas is energy. So uh, new energy sources, that is an area where technology has a large role to play. Another one is safety optimization and integration monitoring. And a crucial, crucial one is communication. So essentially breaking down the barriers indeed of the communication problem that ports tend to have and making the communication between the different stakeholders easier, immediate, and uh, smoother. This has a large role to play, specifically in um, emergency situations, but not only. Um, as we said, there's a lot going on in a port environment and facilitating that communication is very important. Lastly, another way in which technology is being used is um, in order to predict and maintain the assets in a more efficient and effective manner. Cranes, um, port infrastructure is very, very expensive. And uh, port operators have the challenge of making sure that they are always um, maintained in the best possible way in order to preserve the asset as long as possible and also ensure that accidents don't happen. Technology has had a large role to play, for example, sensors that allow uh, the operators or the engineering department, maintenance department within these uh, uh, port companies to predict exactly when the assets need to be uh, looked at, maintained, pieces replaced, and so forth. This was not the case before, but now they're able to do this. And this has a direct impact on the costs of the business and also the safety records. So previously you mentioned some big ports that are doing this, uh, Rotterdam, Hamburg, Singapore. But where else are we seeing smart ports being built today? Is it just the biggest of the big? 
Uh, that's a good question. Um, we know of the biggest and the big, but that's not necessarily the case. Um, there are also smaller operations that would greatly benefit from uh, technology that would come under the remit of smart ports. I have to say that um, one of the big, um, the big and the most, let's say, well-received type of technological innovation that uh, ports uh, tend to adopt today has to do with that item related to communication. And this has partly to do with the requirements. Um, obviously, there's a layer to do with regulation. And so some of this technology helps the ports to comply with this regulation. And um, then there's also an issue of efficiency and effectiveness. And this is important for ports in order to ensure that shipping lines continue to call at their, at their facility. So even smaller economies, uh, for example, Seychelles, Maldives, who are in themselves small economies and quite vulnerable to things like climate change, they are very much endorsing this technology because it is important for them to a, make sure that shipping lines continue to call at their ports, but also B, it's very important for, to them to, for them to receive the information required to predict things like changing sea levels, uh, weather conditions, and also to enable them to communicate with other ports and with stakeholders. So one a big initiative that a lot of these smaller ports are taking is to include things and is to um, make sure that they develop things like port community systems and terminal operating systems. And the good thing is that, you know, in the past, this used to involve a lot of uh, upfront investment costs. But today, there are new players in the market that are allowing OPEX-based uh, technology to be um, to be included so that these port authorities who might not have the resources that the big players have, they can still access this technology by paying, let's say, a pay-as-you-go type of system. That means that they don't have to shelve out a lot of capital all at once. They can do it slowly but surely. So these are new innovations that really help smaller ports as well. So it's not just the technology, but also it's the way you are able to finance that technology. So just based on what you said, it does seem like having a smart port in a sort of remote area like the Arctic would be possible. What would the competitive advantage of that be? And as a follow-up to that question, I'm also wondering, is it necessary to have an economic base in place already? Or if we built a smart port, or built a port in the far north, would that induce demand and cause more shipping traffic to, to flow north? That is a more complex question than it sounds. So essentially, um, it's a good question. Um, I think, so there are two aspects to this. One is the economy, the, the economic activities that these ports are supporting. And the second one is the remote location. Now, the two are inextricably linked, of course, but not necessarily, because as we know, you might have a very remote location, 
But let's say if it's very, very rich of a particular resource, say something, a mine or oil or oil in the past, now renewables, that can still be economically quite successful, even though it's remote. So the first thing we need to ask ourselves is what type of resources does the Arctic have that can provide the base for the economic development of the area? So this is almost to be understood separately from the fact that these, uh, the location is remote. The remote aspect of uh, the location has implications in terms of other things such as what other services, what other opportunities are there for ports in the Arctic, Arctic beyond the local economy? So for example, as we were talking earlier, transshipment opportunities or transit trade opportunities. Now, we know that the Arctic route might be a potential source of new business. So that is um, there in the background. And uh, we also know that there's a lot of resources and um, opportunities that the Arctic can drop on um, that is useful for the local economy, but also for the broader international community. These are all things that need to be identified and then ports are there to facilitate that. So the port in itself is not going to be the driver of the economy. The port is going to be the enabler of the economic activity. So my view or my observation would be that the first step is to understand what the key resources are. And then ports come in to enable that to happen. The technology aspect is important insofar as it will allow the ports to be an option for customers, namely the shipping lines that will be passing through. And also it will decrease the cost and time of trade for the community. These two things are all enablers of growth. So again, technology can be seen as an enabler. But I'm not sure whether we, at this point, we can say technology is the driver. It can definitely be the driver of a lot of things, but from a port perspective, the economic base needs to be clear, clearly defined. And then ports can play a role in enabling that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's a great point to raise in specifically in the context of the Arctic, because the Arctic region, Canada's Arctic, has a lot of mining resources and a lot of economic potential that isn't currently being um, fully utilized simply because it's impossible to either access the resources or to get them south. Um, so in that way, a port would be a great enabler of the northern economy. Um, but I'm wondering, one of the, the main challenges a lot of infrastructure projects in the north faces is just simply due to um, the relative lack of people. There's not many people who live there and also the distances between communities. Um, skilled labor can sometimes be a challenge. So do you think a smart port would increase the need for smart for skilled labor? Would that be a major, would the lack of skilled labor be a major barrier to um, a project such as this? Uh, 
That's a really good question. And it's actually something that I've thought about a lot. Um, I remember my, actually my second consultancy project 10 plus years ago was about the impact of automation on uh, port workers, so essentially the labor force in ports. And it was a fascinating project. And essentially the conclusion I, I came to was that at some level, technology and automation does replace workers with machines. There's no doubt about that. And it also very much does change the skill profile of a lot of the roles that um, are required for a port. Now, for a lot of economies, accessing, accessing those type of skill sets, it's not a problem. The problem might be the salaries, um, but you know, if you're ready to pay the salaries that are required, you will get the uh, skills and the jobs. For other communities, that is not the case. And as I said, I work a lot in West Africa, and, um, and there are certain roles that, um, you know, it's possible, but it's not always easy to find the right type of profile to handle very com relatively more complex technologies and um, systems. I think one way to tackle this from the Arctic perspective is when we look at port development and port infrastructure projects, we should also look at the skills aspect. And a lot of uh, economies that I've seen, they have invested in uh, maritime institutes um, and basically educational facilities that have very much focused on younger people within the um, economy and recruited them to train uh, specifically in the uh, to um, access the jobs in ports and shipping. These are, these are significant investments. Uh, a Maritime Training Institute is a significant investment, but not every location needs to have one. One is enough. One regional one would be enough as a starting point. And these could be strengthened and their very strong links could be developed between these type of training institutes and um, the ports in the area. This is one example where the port investment isn't just done in isolation, but there's some planning involved with respect to, okay, we're going to have a new port and this is where we're going to get the skills that we need in order to operate that port. The other alternative, of course, is to outsource the operations to private sector. And these tend to be international companies that bring in their own labor. But I think from a point of view of the Arctic, as well as many other economies, it really makes sense to look at this from a holistic point of view and not just from the point of view of, okay, we have a port. It's we have a port, but we want to develop a whole community around it, a whole economy around it. And making sure that uh, if we don't already have the existing maritime sector uh, apprentices system, the institutes, then we have to start looking at planning on how to getting those. The other thing to note is that um, 
there's a bit of a bias because the more technology comes in, the, the lower the age becomes. And, and that's just the thing. I mean, I'm, I'm really shocked. I was in India a few years ago and I was staying with a family with a seven-year-old. And I asked her, you know, what did you do in school today? She said, oh, I, I had coding class. <laughs> and I was amazed. And I just thought, oh my God, you're seven years old and you're already learning how to code. Wow. So this is just, <laughs> indeed, this is all examples of how, you know, there's a whole set of considerations that we need to have around where technology is leading from the point of view of the skill set required. Um, I think it's a very complex question that needs a lot of planning. But that said, um, there is absolutely no reason uh, to just say, oh, well, we don't have the skills, that's it. We're just going to have to outsource everything. No, there need, there's absolutely a lot to be gained by looking at this holistically and really planning ahead to see how we can um, recruit younger people in the sector and make sure that we are able to drop on local skills to, you know, uh, operate and thrive in the context of the new port um, projects that may happen as you know the need increases. So if say if, if we're in the Arctic now we, we want to build a new port how has how, how are ports financed now where does the funding for them usually come from and how has that changed over time? Uh, that's a really interesting um, area. That's that's a really interesting history, actually. So ports are, as we said, large capital investments, and they typically 20 or 30 year deals. So concession agreements can be, you know, minimum 15, 20 years up to 45, 50 years. They have long cost recovery periods and need to be funded by long term debt and equity. But recently, fewer banks have actively been supporting infrastructure and public-private se sector type deals. So the lending margins over the base rate of commercial bank loans for infrastructure um, have doubled despite interest rates going down. So availability of commercial bank loans with uh, maturity greater than 10 years have reduced. So many banks support projects early repayment mechanisms. So essentially what that means is financing these longer term projects has been increasingly difficult. Um, development banks have been trying to plug in the gaps of left by commercial lenders and they can invest both as in equity as, a, as debt. So they can be like a typical bank or they can actually fund, uh, fund it through equity. So basically become partial owners of the assets. Overall, funding port projects is more difficult. So for the Arctic, I think there needs to be a set of different options. One would be development banks. Um, and this would be a good way to start and to look into specifically because of the fact that there's a, a development angle, a strong development angle to these port projects. 
The second um, avenue, of course, is commercial banks. And then a third avenue would be trying to understand what role the government wants to play in or and port authorities in the context of the operation. So the typical model is a landlord model, whereby the government owns the land on which the port is uh, based, and they tend to finance things such as the dredging, for example, which is very expensive, and other basic infrastructure costs. Then the private sector comes in and finances things like the superstructure the buildings, the uh, cranes, and so forth. But there are various different models that can be used to finance the different um, port facilities. So I think it really depends on the capacity of the government and the requirements that these ports um, have. And based on that, then multiple type of um, deals can be struck. But I would say that because there's a very strong development angle, and also there's a very large potential, specifically looking forward into the future from the point of view of renewable energy, the Arctic route, and so forth, I think uh, solutions can be found. It's just a matter of understanding where, who wants to own what, and what type of returns we're looking at and what makes sense from from the local community's perspective. I would think perhaps in building a business case for constructing a new port or financing a port, having a smart port where you're able to generate data or analyze data and then selling that would help with the the business case essentially. Um, Do you have any thoughts on that and whether a smart port is is helpful in getting in, in getting ports constructed because you have that extra aspect that you can monetize. Absolutely, yes. That that's definitely an avenue an avenue that is worth looking into. And uh, I, you know, in in our exchange earlier, you also mentioned uh, smart cables, and I did think about it. And I think you're absolutely right. There's data, especially in the context of climate change and the environment. I think I I see a massive, massive need for uh, data. And the Arctic can provide that, especially um, when it comes to things like uh, sea level rises, uh, weather, extreme weather events, uh, the ability to predict um, and This is all data that would be very useful, I think, not just for the Arctic, but broadly speaking for the international community. Um, So absolutely, I would see that as a very useful avenue to look into. Now, the extent to which that can then be monetized, that's something that would need to be understood in the context of who would be doing the investments, what investments would be required, the time frame involved, and you know all of that. So that is difficult for me to say right now, but from the point of view of the, the, the principle of the idea, I think is definitely worthwhile looking into. And you know, whenever I speak to people in our sector, they tell me, Natalie, technology is really not the problem. We have the technology. The challenge is to understand and articulate clearly what is the problem that we want to solve with this technology. And I think this first point is really crucial because, uh, 
you know, speaking to the experts, the technology is already there for pretty much anything you want. <laughs> so previously, you actually spoke at the conference Arctic 360 hosted with the Canadian Coast Guard. And one idea that we found really interesting from your presentation was about the blue economy. Um, so what is the blue economy? And maybe you can explain uh, our, to our audience a little bit about that. Sure. So the blue economy, again, is... Um, I wouldn't say completely new concept, umbrella concept, but it, it has been around for some time now. And essentially it's a, an, um, let's say, let's call it an umbrella concept that looks at how to build um, sustainable revenue streams and sustainable economic activities um, around the marine environment, and this is understood in the broader con in the broader context. So this would include ports, it would include the sea, and it would include essentially economic activities in and around um, the marine environment. And the key principles around uh, the blue economy is essentially these economic activities need to be sustainable and they need to be in line with the climate and environmental objectives of the national economy and broadly the international community. Now, I've seen this as being a framework around which policies have been developed and alongside policies, resources have been earmarked and ring-fenced. These resources can be used by uh, the public sector, so local councils, port authorities, and all sorts of levels, as well as the private sector, to raise financing to um, initiate economic activities in the context of um, the marine environment. As areas include, for example, fisheries. So how to pursue more sustainable fishing practices. I mean, this is a very big, big area at the moment. The other area that is also very important is biodiversity. Now, this tends to not be discussed as much as climate change, but um, this is increasingly being recognized as a really important area of work. And unfortunately, biodiversity has not been considered seriously enough in a lot of countries. Um, so I would say that is a real example of where um, the blue economy concept and the resources and financing around it can be used. Um, just specifically with the Arctic, I think the blue economy is a, is a really good concept around which uh, governments can frame policies going forward and also a vision, a vision of where they want their uh, ports and broader marine um, infrastructure projects and marine um, activities. Where do they want to these to lead? What objectives do they have in mind? And what principles do they want to uphold while pursuing those objectives? The blue economy can provide a good framework to discuss this, debate this, uh, pr pursue consultation with the local economies that you know need to come 
at the very front uh, in terms of the discussions. And, um, and again, raise financing because all of this will have, um, you know, you can plan as much as you want, but then really the challenge is, you know, raising the finances to pursue them in practice. I think that's a really important concept, especially for the Arctic, given how fragile the ecosystem is, both in terms of climate change and the biodiversity there. So if our audience wants to learn more about this concept of the blue economy, do you have any suggestions for where they could go to learn more? Ah, that's a good question. So the European Union publishes a blue economy report every year, and it's an interesting read, if not just to see how they frame it. Um, but there's a lot of different resources out there. Um, development banks, such as the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, they are pursuing a lot of projects around that concept. The World Bank has published a lot. Um, and from then there are more specific areas, for example, the UK government um, published a so-called, uh, it's called Daskupta Report on Biodiversity, that is a well-known and has, it has had quite an important impact on debates around, you know, how to measure and quantify the benefits of biodiversity, which is ultimately something that is very important for investors and banks and so forth. So it's that link between economics, uh, finance and biodiversity, climate change. So, you know, things, the message tends to be more effective if there are numbers attached to it. This report is an example of an attempt of doing that. So there's um, a lot out there, but I would say these are examples of the reports I would look at, at least at the beginning in order to orient yourself around the topic. Sure, and thank you. Um, so this is this has been a really interesting conversation today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, just before we end, I want to ask you if there's anything you want to add to the conversation that we haven't brought up thus far. Um, I think um, there's so much going on um, globally, and I think the Arctic is a really, really interesting uh, region. To I, I personally want to learn more about it. So no, I I just wanted to say that um, I will. I'm personally committed to learning more about the Arctic and the opportunities that are there. And I just wanted to say, I really hope that, um, yeah, the, the developments around ports and marine infrastructure and trade more broadly can be really inclusive and uh, comprehensive and uh, looked at in a holistic manner to make sure that the developments really do benefit uh, the communities. I think that's a good note to end on. So thank you again very much for your time. I really appreciate talking to you today. You're very welcome. Take care.